I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Kesha Podcast. How are you feeling, Jonathan? We left you... Well, I'm a little better, I'm glad to tell you. I'm a little better. I am still unbelievably testing positive. It's like some kind of weird (laughs) marathon where I'm into day 11 or something or day 10. It's still testing positive, which means I'm still complying with the rules, even though the government has actually dropped the rules. I'm still complying with them and therefore... It's feel, feeling like some perennial isolation. But I'm in good company. I mean, Bibi Netanyahu now has COVID as well. So it's not just me. Coincidence, so I, feel as if I, have, I ask? I feel as if I have comrades in my isolation. Yes, it is wholly a coincidence. Before you construct a theory, how I've infected the former prime minister. So no, it's um, and, and it's not just him or me. I've noticed it is a lot of people and there is a spike um uh, that is going on in this country. There are definitely more cases. It's just not really on the news anymore for reasons we know. There was a strange thing where the restrictions in in England, not in the UK, but in England, were restricted at were lifted at midnight oh one on Thursday, the twenty fourth of February, and at five a.m. that same day, so less than five hours later, the Russian military invaded Ukraine. And people have made the point that Boris Johnson had about four and a half hours (laughs) off between COVID and then Ukraine. Um, So no, obviously, all eyes are massively on Ukraine. And what uh, big developments this week, which I found perversely vindicating of the approach you and I have followed, because you and I in talking about Ukraine, inevitably, because of the nature of this podcast, have talked about what it means and what it feels like and uh, and how it's received by Jews and Israelis and you know some may some may have thought that was a bit kind of you know parochial or even narcissistic to make it about us but developments this week Yoni have suggested that it's not just us who think Israel have a role in this story no i mean there are two things i think we should mention uh this week that are very relevant to Israel and of course um kind of increasingly became, as you said, an international topic. One of them is the fact that Naftali Bennett, the relatively inexperienced Israeli prime minister, has been shuttling between, right, he, this, this is a story of broken Saturday, he's an observant Jew, he broke the Sabbath, to uh, shuttle between uh, uh, Moscow meeting with uh, Putin and then meeting with uh, Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, you know, trying to mediate or be a mediator uh, in this story um, and acting as a, as a, as a go-between. This is a very interesting story, Jonathan. You know, aren't you worried that the, the, the Putin is using you as sort of a cover for legitimacy while he's still attacking Ukraine? You know, things like that. And on the other hand, the advantage for him is, first of all, he could keep a little bit longer this sort of what we talked about a lot in this program, Israel, Israel's neutrality, which is beginning to annoy a lot of people outside Israel and inside Israel as well. And he can stay, still say, look, I, I have to be neutral because I'm trying to mediate. We talked about how Israel needs to, on the one hand, is alliances, it's like U.S. and Ukraine. On the other hand, of course, we are entangled with Russia uh, on the Syrian border. The other thing that's an advantage for, for Naftali Bennett is internal politics, right? He is stepping up. He looks like this. It's the optics of him looking as this leader on the international stage, trying to make uh, uh, some sort of broker, some sort of ceasefire or peace. Um, I have to tell you that on the competing channel this week, I'm very magnanimous towards my competition. There was a poll that came out, and the Israeli public is very supportive of what Bennett is trying to do. The amazing thing about the poll is that it also asked, who do you think is fit to be prime minister? 
Bennett's people were very pleased by the fact that Bennett got 20%, thus landing him, improving his situation, landing him not in the third place, but in the second place, second of port, of course, to Benjamin Netanyahu, getting 50% on the question, who do you prefer to be prime? Who do you think, think is fit to be prime minister? All this, Jonathan, please take into consideration, Bennett is the prime minister, right? I mean, and he's, <laughs> and he's getting third. 20%. He's now tw- he's now in second place. As I said, his aides are very happy about this poll. So again, this all connects to him trying to be, it, I want to say elder statesman, which is funny, someone who's shy of two weeks shy of his 50th birthday, but trying to be sort of this leader uh, and taking his place among, among the other leaders around the world. I, I was thinking, it struck me as being one of the very rare, if not perhaps the very first case where Israel had been used as an intermediary in somebody else's conflict. I just don't know if that's ever happened before. I mean, an Israeli prime minister has been on the world stage, but usually because Israel is locked in its own conflict, either Mm -hmm. fighting a war or involved in peace talks. But the idea of Israel as the broker between others, I don't know whether that's ever happened before. It seems uh, a pretty extraordinary, but yeah, that will do things for his standing and does make you know. I'm uh, I, I'm not surprised that his polling has made uh, enabled him. And just when you mention about public opinion, I'm interested. I know about the pressure outside Israel coming from Volodymyr Zelensky on down, pressuring Israel to take a stand here rather than being on the fence. But inside Israel itself. I'm, I'm I'm fascinated to know, obviously, there are a lot of Russian-born Israelis or Israelis of Russian heritage. Are they rooting for Russia in this? And who are the Israelis who are saying, no, let's back Ukraine more strongly? So first of all, there's a, a very, there is internal, a lot of internal criticism about the fact that Israel is sitting on the fence. A lot of people who are being very supportive of Ukraine. You had pictures of people, you have people walking around with Ukrainian flags there's an interesting thing you said uh, Zelensky is being specific about Israel. He is. He actually said in this impromptu um, press conference he gave last week, he said, I saw pictures of Israelis wrapped in the Ukrainian flag. I don't feel like the Israeli leader is wrapped in the Ukrainian flag. That It means to him, I mean, you look at him and you say, the whole West is standing by you. People are sending you weapons. They're supporting you. There are sanctions against Russia. But he cares about what Israel is doing. And he's deeply, it feels like, he's really exasperated by what Israel is doing. And the story that came out this week as well that we should talk about and mention is Barak Ravid, Israeli journalist Barak Ravid's story about Zelensky wanting to speak in front of the Israeli parliament on a Zoom call, of course, not coming here and speaking, but that the Knesset, uh, the, the Speaker of the Knesset, Miki Levy, tried to explain that the Knesset is now in recess and there are renovations in the, the main uh, hall, so maybe he can speak to the, uh, you know, to the members of Knesset by a Zoom conversation. Individually, the Ukrainians got very upset and said no. This became a huge story. And I think more than anything, it kind of is indicative of just how angry the Ukrainians are at, uh, at Israelis. I would just, and this is, of course, me kidding, but I'm just saying, if you really want to see the Israeli government freak out, I think Zelensky should try saying that he wants to have an Israeli citizenship, make Aliyah under the law of return, and then see what the Israelis try to do. Uh, But that's just a joke. Um, Obviously, the Ukrainians are quite upset. That would be the PR coup to end all PR (laughs) coups. The man who is the world's most admired 
person right now if he was to decide to become a citizen of Israel. I don't think, I think the PR and Hasbara community could stand down, their work would be done. <laughs> now, this is the right moment to introduce our very special guest, Anne Applebaum. It has been just essential reading throughout this whole crisis. As listeners will know, she's a staff writer at The Atlantic, but a real expert on Eastern Europe, and particularly Ukraine. She wrote an absolutely brilliant book called Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, author of Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe, so telling us that that is nothing new, and most recently, Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Law of Authoritarianism. Anne Applebaum, great to have you on Unholy. I thought we should just dive right in and put this question to you. There are two views emerging, really, just crudely defined. I mean, on the one hand, Joe Biden and a whole lot of world leaders saying uh, we just cannot take the risk of entangling militarily uh, with a nuclear power, and therefore there will be no direct military confrontation of Vladimir Putin. And then on the other hand, which I'm going to call the Gary Kasparov view associated with the uh, great chess grandmaster who says, look, dictators only stop when they're stopped. And that means by force. So between those two broadly defined views, Biden and Kasparov, uh, and where do you stand? So I probably lean further towards Gary. Um, I believe that we could do more. Um, it's important to understand that what we are doing, we are arming the Ukrainians, we're giving them anti-tank weapons, uh, we're giving them intelligence, um, we are uh, giving them humanitarian aid and financial aid of, of various different kinds. Um, we are already supporting them. Uh, this is already a proxy war. Um, I think the difficulty is that we haven't had a proxy war in a long time. Um, it's, you know, I think you have to go back to Afghanistan in the 1980s. And nobody really knows what the rules are. And in particular, nobody knows what the rules are with Putin in power rather than a Soviet Politburo with which we're familiar and whose red lines we understood a little bit better. I do think that we could give the Ukrainians planes. I think that we could be doing more in terms of teasing the Russians. Um, you know, I don't know why we're not doing major military exercises in the Baltic Sea right now. I don't know why we aren't um, uh, you know, drawing Russian troops away from this area in in more creative ways. You know, right now, as a as a as a political science professor said to me yesterday, you know, Putin has the escalatory um, you know momentum behind him. I don't know why we've allowed that to happen. Why is he dictating the terms of this conflict? Um, why don't we scare him about what we might do? I do understand the fears of Biden and everybody else and, and, and Macron and Schultz and Johnson. I understand that people don't want a nuclear war and I understand that people don't really know what would provoke one. There isn't a rule book that will tell us. But I, I do agree that allowing Ukraine to be destroyed, physically destroyed and allowing, and we have one and a half million refugees already creating 2 million refugees, 5 million refugees, 10 million refugees will be so catastrophic for Europe and for Ukraine um, that I don't think we can allow that to happen. Um, and so I think I, I, what I'm hoping is that in the next few days, we become more creative in what we're doing for the Ukrainians. Th that is the, the side of the West, Anne, but I, I want to kind of go back to the side of, of Putin. And I think it is 
pretty clear that we could say that he has miscalculated, right? I mean, he underestimated the Ukrainian resistance. I think he underestimated the West's resolve. And he probably thought his army was better prepared for this. What does that make a man like him do? Does it make him sort of increase the ferocity of the onslaught or the other way around, push the brakes? Um, So, yes, you're absolutely right. He completely miscalculated. He knows very little about modern Ukraine. He hasn't been there. He doesn't talk to anybody there. Nobody around him does either. He got his ideas from Ukraine from some very strange old history books or maybe from some I can't even imagine what kind of scholar he his his versions of Ukrainian history are so bizarre that they're they're hard to understand. Um, and he did not expect Ukrainian resistance, and he also didn't expect the Western response that there's been. So I stipulate that all of the Western response is perhaps not enough and not creative enough. It's more certainly than the Russians expected. Um, the quality and quantity of the weapons that have been given to Ukraine, the amount of intelligence that's been given to Ukraine is more um, than he thought. So far, we know what his first response was. So his first response to not succeeding in 48 hours, which was the original plan, is to bombard and destroy Ukrainian cities. And so what we're watching now is pure violence. Uh, The Ukrainian army is able to fight the Russian army on the ground. So when they do try to advance, they are pushed back. What the Ukrainian army is not able to do is to stop bombs and missiles raining from the sky. That's why the Ukrainians keep talking about a no-fly zone, because that's the thing that they can't stop. Um, And so Putin is using that air advantage to literally destroy cities. I mean, he now appears to be targeting hospitals. This is something that he did in Syria, um, so we shouldn't be surprised by it. And he's trying to intimidate the population and, as I said, perhaps to create refugees on purpose. That's the current game plan. And that could get worse if he, you know, right now it's a handful of eastern Ukrainian cities. Um, Next could be Kiev. Um, there's talk of bombing Odessa, which would be a real, I mean, both Kiev and Odessa would be terrible crimes, um, not just against against people who live there, but against history and architecture and culture. Um, But this isn't somebody who cares about that. Um, So yes, I do think it could get worse. Um, He has been very clear and he continues to repeat the idea that his goal is not just, I don't know, creating a land bridge from Crimea to Russia, but actually conquering and controlling Ukraine. He wants a puppet government. He wants some some kind of weak government in Kiev that he can direct and control. Uh, and he said that several times. He said it to Macron a few days ago. He hasn't yet lowered his expectations. Um, and so, yes, it could be, it could get more dangerous. When you see these images out of Russia, of Russian apparent support for what Putin's doing, but also this particular phenomenon we've seen of these crowds of young people with the Z, the Z symbol, doing a kind of right arm salute. There are some very uncomfortable echoes in those images. Do you think the parallel is now getting too unmistakable to be ignored? I think he's doing that on purpose. Um, you know, I, I think the well, first of all, one of the odd things about the support for the war is how orchestrated it is. I mean, we didn't see there aren't spontaneous crowds, you know, cheering on the troops. There's nothing like that. Um, and although we can't really do polling in Russia anymore, the groups that have tried Navalny's organization, the, the dissident organization, has some methods of doing online polling. Um, and they think that fear and anxiety about the war is increasing over the last few days. So so we're not seeing any spontaneous support. What we're seeing are these orchestrated state planned videos and organized 
you know, displays of, you know, youth salute doing the Hitler salute and um, wearing Zs on their chest instead of swastikas. Yeah, I think that's deliberate. I think that's an intimidation tactic. Look how united we are. Um, you know, we are, and he's trying to remind people of the worst episodes in European history so that we're more afraid of him. And he's doing that even as he's meanwhile saying that Kiev is in the hands of neo-Nazis and that he's the guy who's denazifying. Yes. I mean, I think one of the goals, and this has been brilliantly been explained by my friend Peter Pomerantsev, who's a great expert in Russian propaganda. One of the goals is to take the horror away from the word Nazi. And so all of the rules and norms and mantras that we created after the Second World War, you know, never again, um, you know, we've learned the lessons of history. He wants to undermine all of that and say, that's all rubbish. That's all fake. You know, I'm going to destroy that. I'm going to wreck it with, um, you know, both with this war, which is a which is an unprovoked um, you know, war in which he's already using genocidal language about wiping the Ukrainians off the map, that kind of thing. Something very close to saying final solutions. You know, we need a final solution for the Ukrainian problem. He's doing, I think, all that is deliberate. You know, he's trying to undermine those um, those traditions that have developed in Europe in particular and, you know, Europe and the U.S. and Israel over the last several decades. I think it's deliberate. You know, I, I have to kind of as the Israeli in this conversation, pull us to the issue of, of the Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett trying to mediate. And when you take into consideration just how, um, let's say, more experienced Putin is, is that in any way something that can be effective? And when you listen to what, as, at least the Israelis are saying, of, of what Putin has told the Israeli Prime Minister, which is, I know where Zelensky is, but I don't want to hurt him, and deliberately I'm not hurting him. Um, what do you make of all this, of all these attempts by the Israeli government to to try and mediate something here? It is true that Israel, because of the Russian and Ukrainian population in the country, has links and even just linguistic skills that other governments don't have. And so I don't think it's illegitimate for Bennett to try and negotiate or to try and help solve a problem that actually may have an effect on a lot of Israelis um, who are connected to that part of the world. There's a lot of business connections as well. You know, in some ways, he's a more, he has more argument to be a negotiator than some European leaders who, who don't have those kinds of connections do. What I don't know, and maybe you can answer this better than me, is whether he has the understanding of Putin and Putinism that are necessary to solve this. I mean, um, you know, Putin has a long history of lying during negotiations. And the foreign minister of, of, of Russia um, a few hours ago said, we're not at war in Ukraine. You know, of course, we're not going to invade any other countries. We haven't invaded Ukraine either. Um, and so they're able to lie in a way that I think other people find shocking and startling, even people who've been dealing with Middle Eastern politics, which is, you know, equally, equally complex. You know, whether he's capable of understanding that, you know, any negotiation is going to be part of the war. In other words, Putin may very well seek to use a negotiation to get the Ukrainians to stop fighting in order to then advance farther. And so I would just hope that Bennett has the, the Israeli prime minister has the, you know, is able to recognize what's going on and does isn't taken in by something. I mean, I don't think the Ukrainians are going to be taken in, so I don't think that's a problem. But I don't mind any anybody who has some inside track or is able to speak to either side in a special way. I didn't mind them intervening. I mean, I wouldn't, um, I don't object to it. I just hope that nobody is naive enough to think that they can solve it. 
You know, just following that up a bit, when David Remnick was on this podcast two or three weeks ago, he slightly teased us for finding the kind of the local angle, the parochial interest here. And yet, there is a sort of, the Israeli dimension has become obvious with Naftali Bennett. But even Jewishly, it's noticeable that Volodymyr Zelensky made this plea to the Jews of the world to take a stand on this. So, so well, you say, of course, so, so tell us about that. What is the special responsibility, if there is one, as you see it, that Jews have in terms of this story as it's unfolding? So I would, I would add, before, saying, before answering that, I would say Zelensky also made a really um, beautiful speech after the bombing of a cathedral in Kharkiv and talked about the significance for Christians around the world. So, so it's, it's not only Jews, but, you know, we are watching a conflict between an open society where a Jew can be elected president, where the definition of nationalism and patriotism is a civic definition. You know, you are Ukrainian in Ukraine because you are loyal to the state and because you believe in democracy and you believe in the political system. It is not an ethnically defined national state. Um, I think that may come from a lot for may exist for a lot of reasons. Partly it's because you have both Ukrainians and Russians or Ukrainian speakers and Russian speakers inside the country. And so the they have a broader, almost more American idea of national identity than almost anybody else in the region does. And they are fighting against a state which is a closed society and an autocracy. They're not locking up Jews at the moment, but they could easily in the future. Um, Right now, they lock up Jehovah's Witnesses. They persecute gay people. There's a contrast between the two kinds of societies, one in which Jews and minorities and other people who don't fit into an ethnic majority can thrive and live and, you know, be leaders and be cultural leaders. And there are plenty of Jews in other parts of Ukrainian society as well. Um, And one in which minorities of all kinds will always be under threat. Um, And so I think... Um, any Jews who are watching this should understand that. That's one of the things that this contest is about. It's about two definitions of what we mean by national identity. I don't think anybody would have guessed in 1991 that Ukraine would be the post-Soviet state that would develop this civic nationalist identity as opposed to an ethnic nationalist identity, um, but it did. I, I talked about this with a Ukrainian history professor, Serhii Plohi, he's really one of the great historians of Ukraine, And he said, you know, the funny thing is nobody ever told the Ukrainians what civic nationalism is. It wasn't like it was on the ballot or anyone ever explained it or there were any lessons in it. It's just automatically what they chose over the last um, couple of decades, partly in opposition to Russia because they saw the way that Russia was developing and they wanted Ukraine not to be like that. Um, And so they've chosen what they think of as a European identity and a European way of being. And that's to them is a, you know, multi-ethnic, multinational, however you want to describe it, form of patriotism. It does seem like the West has found its sense of purpose again. I mean, that the, there's cooperation and, and, and even intelligence that was very accurate on Putin's plan. And as someone who's written so much about, you know, autocrats and memorably also that piece in Atlantic, the bad guys are winning, Is there any cause for optimism? Does it make you a little bit optimistic? So I am cautiously optimistic, um, partly because I see how the Zelensky's speeches and the actions of the Ukrainians have really inspired people in the West. And I think people do understand that this is a fight for democracy and an open society. 
you know, somehow we'd allowed the idea that democracy is something you can really fight for and really care about to slip away from us. And I think that is what people are seeing and admiring all across Europe and the United States. I, I am cheered by that. I am cheered by the amount of support that Ukraine is getting um, by the military support, by the huge humanitarian support. You know, I, I know, I mean, actually, my whole email inbox is full of fundraising invitations and, um, you know, charities to donate to. And almost everybody I know is now doing something for the Ukrainians. Um, and so I, 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 you know, and that's not coming from the government. I mean, those are grassroots. I see that and I feel that and I'm cheered by it. I am still worried. I'm still worried that there could be bad outcomes and that, you know, Ukraine could lose. Um or that the outcome would be some uncomfortable and unhappy negotiation, which, you know, just keeps the, uh, the unstable situation more unstable. Um, and I really do feel that the I'm not sure that the leaders of the West have yet understood that we have to win. We have to win this war. Um, and it's very important for the future of West, the West and the safety of NATO um, that we win. And partly the reason people will nod to that and agree with that is that the, there's a big principle at stake, which is against the notion that you can seize territory and or change borders by force, that that's a fundamental principle. And I just wonder about the long-term effects of the whole world uniting to reassert that principle. Obviously, before anybody writes in, I know that the circumstances of 1967 were wholly different in every way from what we're seeing now. But is it possible that after this, the world will have less tolerance of Israel being an occupier of the West Bank because of its made this view now that you do not alter borders by force in war and conquest and so on? That is very hard for me to say. I mean, I suppose in one way, Israel is very lucky because Israel has now completely disappeared from all front pages no one's going to talk about it for a long time. So, so it's a, um, lucky you. I mean, I mean, you know, that's not so good for some other places. You know, you know, the plight of the Afghans hasn't really changed or improved thanks to this war. But that's kind of off the um, off the agenda as well. Um, but you know, I mean, it may be that a lot of things look retrospectively worse now. Um, the Israeli occupation, um, the U.S. war in Iraq. Um, quite a number of events in the last several decades will might get re-examined in the light of this catastrophe. Yes, it's possible. I do want to continue that and say, I mean, obviously the whole world, this is op happening in an open air auditorium. The whole world is looking at what Russia is doing, what Ukraine is doing, and what the response is. Does that, you know, it, it proves, okay, we could, you should take dictators and autocrats at their world. You should, you were, you should stand up to them early. What does that mean about other uh, actors in, in the world? What does that mean about China? What does that mean about Iran? Does it have any Yeah, no, it's a great question. Actually, it relates back to Israel as well, because some of the worst dictatorships in the world are in the Middle East, and some of them are U.S. allies. I'm thinking of Saudi Arabia in particular. There is certainly a way in which this war and the way that Putin is fighting it is is intimately and closely related to the style of government that he has created. I mean, he would not be able to pursue a war like this if, it, if he was a different kind of leader. I mean, the, the, what we've already discussed, the fact that he didn't understand what he was doing and where he was going, that's to, because he's an isolated autocrat who has only yes men around him. The fact that he's now bombarding cities and lying about it, that's, you know, that's also made possible by the political system that he functions in. Um, and that means that, you know, other autocracies would be capable of the same. 
we need to be sanguine about that and understand it. It is also clearly the case that the modern autocracies now work together and collaborate with one another and cooperate with one another, even when they have nothing in common ideologically. So this isn't this isn't the old Cold War and there's no Warsaw Pact, but you know Russia and China and Venezuela and Belarus um, and Iran do cooperate in in lots of ways. I mean, they help one another get around sanctions. They the state companies from one country invest in the state companies of the other, and the state companies are of course owned by um, the rulers. Um, you know, the Chinese sell, sell their surveillance technology to everybody. They help keep one another in power and they're interested in keeping one another in power. Um, and so absolutely the Chinese and the other dictatorships in the world are watching what's going on. And the Western response is, you know, is something that they're going to remember. And so I'm sure the Chinese are watching this with some interest and they will be paying a lot of attention to how it comes out. I'm wondering how much that we can, how much confidence we can have that economic sanctions that you just referred to can work, given that Vladimir Putin doesn't care if his own people suffer. And even in terms of the oligarchs and the pressure on them and a new round of sanctions announced just now in London, those oligarchs are not going to turn on Putin either, because they depend even for the slice of the pie they've got, they still depend on him. In that case, given both those things, does economic pressure even work in this sort of situation? So as I understand it, one of the goals of economic pressure is also to make Russia's army dysfunctional. If the Russians can't import spare parts, then at some point their oil wells are going to not function. If they aren't earning any money um, from trade, then at some point they won't be able to, to, to fund their army. The block on all imports is at some point going to have an effect on food security in Russia. Because they right now the the, the Russians, um, you know, export oil and import m- most other things. You know, the war is happening very fast, and this will take some weeks or months. But I think the hope is that eventually, I mean, it's not so much that we think it will get Putin out of power. It's that you know Russia simply won't be able to function, and they won't be able to mount an army, and they won't be able to invade Ukraine or occupy Ukraine or whatever it is they want to do. As I say, my fear is that it's just too slow. It will take too much time for that to happen, if if indeed that can even happen. And, you know, one of the other oddities about particularly these sanctions, which includes one or two elements that have never been tried before, in particular, this freezing of Russian foreign reserves, that's never been done to a country that's, that's as integrated into the world economy as Russia is. And what the knock-on side effects of that are going to be are very, you know, we just don't know. I mean, somebody said to me what, you know, the Egyptians import all of their wheat from Ukraine and Russia. If you had a food shortage in Egypt, you know, you I can, you know, I, you can imagine bread riots in Cairo um, because of this war. And you begin to add up all of the weird knock-on things that could happen. Um, I don't think we really know how they're gonna how they're gonna work, but um, you know, we'll see. I guess we could keep listening to you all day, but you don't have that kind of time. Anne Applebaum, thanks so much. Thanks so much for coming on Unholy. Thank you. It was a pleasure to speak to you both. Thank you. Thank Thank you you. very much. You know, you said it, Jonathan, I could listen to her for another hour or two. What struck me is what she said about the West has to win this war. Like, it's not enough to just stop it. It has to win. And that is, you know, it's a, it's a tall order. It, it, it definitely is. But you can see why she says it, because of this 
point of principle that's at stake that and this is the Garry Kasparov position that you have to stop a dictator uh, and just you know briefly pausing a dictator is not enough because they will come back for more and in a way we've already seen that because he did Crimea in 2014 and has come back for more now so there's a real principle here which has to be defeated and yet what I also I thought and I I, I I'm exactly the same on this one I thought it was very noticeable that on the opening dilemma, this predicament of if you do military action directly, you risk a nuclear war, but if you don't, you risk him just continuing to kill and kill and kill. There is no easy answer to that. You could see that, yes, she talked about being creative, maybe there are other things that could be done, but there isn't a straightforward answer to that. And I noticed that a lot of very thoughtful people around the world, and they don't get much more thoughtful or well-informed than Anne Applebaum on this topic, they really are wrestling with this conundrum. It isn't um, it isn't straightforward at all. There are two really unpalatable options here, which is risking a nuclear war to stop him or allowing him to carry on. I mean, these are not uh, welcome choices by any means. But the world uh, does not stop, and there are other things going on. And um, yeah, uh, you know, especially in your part of the world, I find it amazing that they that the that you know we talked the other day about the Iran track, and that there are still talks going on, and potentially even a breakthrough, even with Russia and the United States involved. But there's other things going on in the region, so why don't you fill us in? Yeah, sure, and they're all related. I think they're all associated with the notion that countries around the world are kind of recalibrating their alliances, right, in, in light of this, uh, what is happening in, in Ukraine. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit, just a little bit, about the Israel-Turkey uh, rapprochement, which is going on this week. Uh, President Herzog of Israel became the first Israeli leader to visit Turkey, uh, state's visit, since 2008. And really, you see the Turkish president, Erdogan, all the pomp and circumstance. You have uh, Tikva, the Israeli national anthem, playing in Ankara. You have those flags flying side by side. Everything like the, going all the, the whole nine yards of the pomp and circumstance. He's, he's hosting Herzog in his 1,100-room palace in Ankara, which always makes you wonder. I know that we're, we're warming up relations with Turkey, and I'm the Israeli journalist, but it makes you wonder... What uh, what happens if you have one thousand one hundred and one guests staying over? You know, it's just <laughs> you're going to have to bunk really, up, guys. What, We're a bit short of space. Is, <laughs> what do you do with such a huge? Okay, never mind. But so um, so you know, obviously, we have to say and pause on this for a minute. The relationship between Israel and Turkey, ever since Erdogan took charge, has known more downs than ups. Uh, he has called Israel a murderer of children and said that we're a terrorist state. Of course, the lowest point of our relationship is the Mavi Marmara story. Israel raided a, a uh, Turkish flotilla on its way to uh, Gaza. There were armed activists, uh, and there was a, a struggle between them and the Israeli army. There were nine killed and ten Israeli soldiers wounded. Israel had to apologize for this. This is in 2010, but relationships really didn't um, uh, p- bounce back from that. So the question here is, Jonathan, what happened to the Turkish president to make him change his mind, or a little bit of his mind at least, um, vis-a-vis Israel? The answer, James Carville was right on the money on that, uh, mind my pun, and that is always the economy. The uh, Turkish economy is in shambles. The more Erdogan is becoming a tighter autocrat, and these things are connected in my opinion, the uh, economy is in shambles. There's a new-ish administration in Washington that's watching him closely. 
and he feels like he can reach out to Israel. There's also, of course, the issue of natural natural gas involved. Um, Stop me when this is becoming boring. But I think that that is, you know, that is what is going on on the Turkish side. Uh, On the Israeli side, I would point out that uh, President Herzog is becoming this sort of, he wants to become this player on the international stage. We talked about Bennett, Herzog as well. They're very well coordinated, not exactly something to be taken for granted in relationships between Israeli prime ministers and Israeli presidents. Um, And this also begs the question, of course, what are his plans when he uh, ends his tenure as president? But uh, that is, of course, uh, in the future. So much going on. I mean, it just does show you that this Ukraine crisis is to paraphrase Tony Blair after 9-11, it is shaking up the kaleidoscope and everything is looking mm-hmm. very different because you have this, for one thing, Ankara playing the, the role of host for these talks. Turkey is was the venue for the talks between the Ukrainian and Russian foreign ministers. They went to Turkey for those conversations. But, you know, Turkey has played a, a role too. It's supplying drones to Ukraine. So it hasn't completely... Um, stayed on the uh, on the fence um it just shows you the way all these alliances everything is going to look mm-hmm. very very different uh, afterwards but the notion of israel having this sort of diplomatic uh flourish over this crisis um, mm-hmm. and naftali bennett as mediator and as you say herzog um playing this very interesting role that the israeli president can play of a sort of unofficial or semi-official diplomat it's all going on. Um, we have some uh, awards to hand out, as always, uh, on this show. And I think you're going to kick us off with a chutzpah award. I was. I was. I don't know if you've noticed, uh, Jonathan, that it, has been, uh, it is International Women's Day this week. Yes, of course, I noticed. Very much so. <laughs> I'm, I feel that you're walking very thinly. You feel like you're walking a thin line. Now, what I wanted to say is, <laughs> look... Um, obviously, this is a day that started out in the beginning of the 20th century, socialist movements, suffrage movements, um, and then it was officially adopted by the UN in 1977. All very important. This is an important day to talk about important issues. I just don't understand, and I never do, what does the world do with the rest of the 364 days it has a year? I mean, look at the world we live in. It's 2022. Women are suffering from violence, sexual violence, sex trafficking, even in countries that are supposedly Western countries, there is, you know, pay gap and not enough women in leadership. And like, where are we? And why are you giving us a day? I mean, women are 49.6% of the population. We hold up humanity. Don't give us a day. Like, deal with these issues every day of every year. And stop, I don't want to say patronizing us with International Women's Day, because obviously, again, there are very important organizations doing very important things on this day. And on other days, I'm just saying, guys, fix the situation you broke and don't do it only on one day in March. It, Did I give you a really long rant? Yeah, Did well, I just do that? I like, no, but there, I think there's, there's, it's a very neat point, which is you gave us a whole day. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Your whole 24 hours just for you. Um, but we've got the rest, okay? So, you know, um, I wanted to give a Mensch Award um, to something completely different. I mean, in a way, and when it came, when the news broke, it was such a respite from everything else because I woke up early on that morning. I think it was the Wednesday morning. And, you know, of course, that doom scrolling impulse, you reach for your phone to find out what horrors the night has brought. And instead, there was a tweet <laughs> from um, the very much admired uh 
historian come sort of action adventurer Dan Snow who has been on board an expedition to the Antarctica and he just tweeted to say endurance has been found and what he was talking about was this search which was described as the most challenging shipwreck search ever and that was to find endurance the ship that Ernest Shackleton the great explorer uh, took in his bid to uh, chart the South Pole and to reach the South Pole uh, it sank um, over a hundred years ago, and uh, there was a the, the shipwreck had never been found, and they found it three just over three thousand meters below the surface. Uh, there it was, and it looked in the photographs so pristine and beautiful because it turns out that the there aren't these sort of wood munching bacteria or creatures or organisms uh, in that part of the Antarctic. And so the waters were look, uh, completely, they, apparently they look like clear mineral water, distilled water, perfectly clear. And you could see the sign of the ship Endurance. And the, you can actually see the kind of captain's wheel um, on the, I don't know ship words. Is it stern? I don't know. Bow? <laughs> I should know that, shouldn't I? I don't know. It's like Jews and trees and birds and ship words. I'm afraid I don't have the vocabulary for that. Um, but you know, but if you saw it, you would know what I mean. Um it looks uh, absolutely stunning. And here's the mensch bit of it. Um, when Dan Snow tweeted this, he said, um, the wreck is in an astonishing state of preservation for all the reasons I said. Nothing has been touched, nothing was touched on the wreck, nothing retrieved. It was surveyed using the latest tools, its position confirmed. It is protected by the Antarctic Treaty and nor did we wish to tamper with it. So they didn't lay a finger on it. All they wanted to do was to know where it is, mark the spot on the uh, maps of, of, the, uh, of Antarctica and the Antarctic Ocean. And they've done that, and they've done it without any gain. Apparently, there was an, an, an anonymous donor who funded it to the tune of $10 million, um, but they, uh, they got nothing material from it, just the knowledge that that's where it is and these wonderful images so i think mention of the week to every the crew of the endurance 2022 mission uh, and particularly for leaving it exactly as they found it a wonderful mystery resolved the headline i take from all of this is that you said jonathan friedland says i don't have the vocabulary this is what I take. i'm kidding i'm kidding <laughs> i think that this is a perfect mensch award and it's a mensch upon a mensch because shackleton himself is such a mensch and you're such a mensch for oh. choosing this because you know I love these stories. So, I mean, this is perfect. It's, it's perfect. Oh, and uh, and we are winding up this conversation. We are. We've done our awards. Yeah, we've done our awards. And we obviously, if you're enjoying it, please subscribe and rate and spread the love for Unholy. And who are we thanking, Yonid? Um, we are thanking Lior Friedman and Rom Atik and Omer Primat and Irad Eshel for original music. And Jonathan, you won't escape this. You will see me next week. I'm looking forward to it, Yonit. See you then.